Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Normally be Allie and I hanging out, just the two of us with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women or should be more famous women in history. <laughs> Absolutely. We have a very special guest here with us today, Emma Southern. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Emma is an ancient historian. She's not ancient. Yeah. She's a historian. <laughs> she's a historian I'm of positively sprightly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she's a writer seeking to make ancient history more accessible and exciting. She's here with us today to talk about her latest book, A History of the Roman Empire in 21 Women, or as it's known in the U.S., A Rome of One's Own. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm a writer of uh, ancient history. I used to be an academic and um, teach ancient history to undergraduates. And then I realized that that was a terrible plan um, because real hard to be an academic. <laughs> so, uh, so I left that and started writing books with jokes in instead um, where people let you compare uh, the Julia Claudian emperors to the Blues family from Arrested Development and think that's actually very good rather than very unscholarly. Um, and yeah, um, and so now I uh, write books about ancient Rome and um, how they were deeply weird and deeply horrible and definitely not somebody, uh, a culture that we should aspire to, but uh, definitely a culture that we should laugh at more. Perfect. So before we get into your book, we obviously have to talk about the cocktail we made for your book. Uh, so this is called A Rome of One's Own, and it is equal parts vodka, limoncello, sweetened lime juice, and Italian dry red wine. So, and then you pour it onto a glass. It just kind of looks like wine, but it's a lot tastier. It's so <laughs> tasty. Damn, that sounds really good. I mm -hmm. wish I had one of those. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make one. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. You can drink it while you read the book, everyone. Exactly. <laughs> so before we dive too deep into your book, we like to set the scene for all of our listeners. We're obviously talking about ancient Rome. What is the length or the time span of this book? And what was life like for the average woman in Rome during this time? So this one has a huge span because it is literally the whole of the history of the Western Roman Empire. Um, so I, it goes from the foundation of Rome, the kind of mythical foundation of Rome in 753 BCE. Um, and then I decided to end it at uh, 450 AD CE um, with the fall of Rome as a um, part, being part of the Roman Empire. So it's a good kind of, just over a thousand years. <laughs> uh, so a bit, a snap of time, really. Um, but the one fairly consistent thing about that entire millennium is that life for women kind of sucked. Um, there was very little in the way of um, an expansion of women's rights or an expansion of um, kind of the visibility of women, particularly. And any time that there was a... Uh, an attempt for women to um, kind of expand the role that they were allowed in public. Uh, that was smacked down fairly heavily, often with whoever was trying to do it being brutally murdered um, and then vilified in public for many, many centuries. Um, so it was generally uh, 
kind of in very broad strokes the situation for women for pretty much the entirety of Roman history until um, really the Byzantine period is that they are not legally adults at any point and they're always legally minors never allowed to vote never allowed to um, own land buy or sell property in their own name um, not technically allowed to uh, like do anything legal in courts or with contracts under their own name Um, they definitely did but there was always the possibility that they could be stopped um and they were never allowed to enter the um the spheres that were considered to be honorable so the two big spheres for history um in general which are war and politics um mm-hmm. were the two spheres that both religiously and um kind of culturally roman women were never allowed to enter and so um, when Roman men were writing about their own history, they mostly wrote about war and politics. And so women don't appear very often unless they're being very badly behaved and dying horribly. Um, and then when modern men have written about the Roman Empire, they have 99% written about war and politics and only considered women to be being very badly behaved. And so... <laughs> um, but that did not. None of those things stopped women from existing and largely doing whatever they wanted anyway, because um, as much as this may come as a shock to some people women are whole people uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and not just kind of bad girls or good girls like the madonna whore thing is just a thing that people made up um and people do women did do all kinds of things they did run businesses they did um engage in politics and they sometimes engaged in warfare but mostly they just lived their lives um just without being written about as much mm-hmm. and I love that you're pointing this out that, you know, obviously a lot of history is written from the male perspective, which is why women are kind of written out of it. People asking you know, like, well, why weren't women doing more? It's like, well, they were, it just wasn't really being exactly recorded yeah. very well. Um, so your book covers, I believe, 21 women, and we're yeah. going to get into a few of them, but how did you choose which women to include and how did you find them in this uh, not very well recorded time period? <laughs> uh, so once you move outside of the texts, mm-hmm. um, women are all over the show. Um, when you move away from histories that men are writing about things that they think are important, um, and you start looking at things like archaeology and epigraphy, which is inscriptions in stone, or um, anything that is just a, any kind of text that isn't history with a capital H, then you find loads of women. Um, we're in the periods that are right about where you only have texts. So like the early and middle Republic, which where there's very little archeology span that remains because it was built over. <laughs> um, uh, uh, women are hard to find because all we have is these texts and all they are is just a kind of relentless litany of men fighting battles and then having arguments. Um, but as soon as you step outside of that, you find that women are all over like writing graffiti places, writing letters to each other, inscribing poetry on the side of statues in graffiti form. Um, Like they are um, running businesses and living lives and being involved in legal cases. And so it was almost in sometimes hard to narrow down the women that I could have included. Um, In the end, I decided that I wanted a woman from every century basically or at least every period um and i wanted the structure of the book to start with rome but then very much to expand outwards and not just be focused on the city of rome and i very much wanted it to not be about empresses and um 
and royals basically as much as I could because then I think that what you're doing is not necessarily telling a different history you're telling the same history about war and politics and you're kind of re-emphasizing the importance of those things like the only way that a woman can be important is if she is an empress and if she has political or military power um but actually like business women and the wives of people who live on the frontiers and um unmarried poets who are quite bad at being poets uh, can also be interesting like you don't have to be um ruling an empire in order to be an important person um so those are my kind of guiding principles and then i um cut out anybody that was too obvious and anyone that already had a book about them <laughs> um and anyone who um i felt was kind of too closely related i keep coming back to rome every so often but um i really wanted to tell stories that were unusual and different and um did not rely too much on battles um or you know arguments with cicero <laughs> i love that i love trying to bring the narrative to the people that we've never heard of before yeah because yeah. um, everybody thinks that livia is in the book like the kind of assumption is that i will have written about livia because she's like the most powerful roman woman mm -hmm. um but she's not in the book one because she has like three books written about her already and two because it is just emphasizing that the way that you are important in the world as a woman is to be doing man stuff basically um and i really wanted to to question that like why can't it be equally as important just to exist and never go to rome and never meet an emperor and just have a birthday party and some kids like <laughs> She's being a little too selfish with all the books about her. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> she doesn't need any more attention. She's fine. <laughs> so uh, one of the women in the book I'd love to know more about was Julio. Is it Balbilla? Yeah, Balbilla. Yeah. Um, um, is she, she's a poet and she's adding to LGBTQ history. Can you talk a little bit about her? Yeah. So she is, uh, hilariously, she is, um, kind of in terms of the corpus of full poems that we have of her she's one of the like best surviving female writers of all of antiquity <laughs> like technically in terms of full extant poems we have more of hers than we have of Sappho um <laughs> and we have like more lines of Sappho because Sappho wrote way more poems but um the way that um Julia Barber survived it is by brilliantly um, paying to have her poems inscribed in stone on the leg of a very ancient Egyptian statue, um, which uh, is a, a was a tourist attraction during the Roman Empire because for a very brief 200-year period in history, it sang in the mornings. Um, and what would happen is as the sunlight hit it, as the, the, the sun came up, um, something chemical happened inside and it would make a kind of banging or snapping noise huh. um and they just people would go and see it because it was like this amazing wonder um and it, it sound described as being like symbols clashing or a lyre snapping or like just a big loud noise basically so people would go and see it um and julia balbia was in the um entourage of the emperor hadrian and she was very close friends with sabina who's his wife um and so they went to see it together and julia wrote four poems about it and had them inscribed on the leg of this statue um and 
was very cleverly uh, put her name in every single one of them. So you can't <laughs> think that they're by anybody else. You know who they're by, unlike a lot of the ones that are on there, because Romans love to put their name on stuff. Um, so um, we have these poems. One of them is just kind of uh, about going to see it, but it is um, probably the best known one because it begins with a description of their first attempt to see it when for whatever reason the statue didn't sing and her and Sabina went out um, to go and see it uh, and it didn't make the noise and so they went home disappointed Um, but they come back the next day and it does sing and so she writes this poem about how um, the god they think the Romans think that it's a god called Memnon Um, and so they uh she writes this poem about the god not singing because Sabina is so beautiful that he wants to see her again. So um, the god has uh, refused to sing so that she'll have to come back and he'll get to see her beautiful face again. <laughs> um, and it's like very, um, it's very nice about Sabina. For context at this time, Sabina's husband um, has been having a very long-term affair with a boy called Antonus, who died like a couple of weeks before this. <laughs> um, and Hadrian is currently in the throes of some quite spectacular grief, um, which involves him putting up about a billion statues of this boy um, and naming a city after him and making him a god and just really really making sure that everybody knows how much he loved this boy while his wife is traipsing around behind him. So it feels very much like, uh, I still love you, Sabina. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but people have read it as, um, as being sapphic, partly because it's very much like about how beautiful it is and how fine her form is and how lovely she is. But also because Babia writes in the... Um, the dialect that Sappho uses, which is called Aeolic, which is a dead dialect by this time. Like this is a thousand years after Sappho was writing. Um, no one has spoken Aeolic in 800 years. Um, and so it's like writing in Old English. It's like if you decided to write in the language of Beowulf. Um, so she is very specifically picking the language of Sappho, who is very much associated with... Um, kind of female love and sapphic love and women who love women. Um, and so it's a choice to write about um, how beautiful a woman is in the language that Sappho used. And so, so like it has been possible to read it as um, a, a possible wink that maybe they were well, because Hadrian was very clear that um, Sabina wasn't allowed to have male friends. Like if m men got too close to her, he exiled them. But maybe she had a female friend that she had nice times with anyway. <laughs> I hope so, for her sake. <laughs> I hope so, for her sake, because Hadrian really made it very clear that he was not that into women. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he would not let her hang out with other boys. So I hope that she hung out with girls instead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, like you were saying earlier, some of the women that maybe were not written about per se were discovered, you know, in various means. And one of them was uh, through archaeology. And I'm so curious about the house of Julia Felix. So, <laughs> how was it discovered? It sounds like a wonderful place to be, um, except for yeah. it's near a volcano. Um, <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that and what we know about Julia. Yeah, so um, that was initially discovered. It is in Pompeii. Um, <laughs> it is. It was initially discovered in the 18th century, like so, the 1750s. The Italians like were digging around and they found it. Um, and initially, it was thought that it was just a, a big villa. 
um, because that's what it looks like. It's got some baths. It's got some nice, um, like, gardens. It's got a dining room. It looks pretty. It looks like a big, weird-shaped villa. Um, but then when they started excavating the streets on the outside of it, they found um, in the – this is not until the 20th century – they found a sign that says, um, for rent for a period of five years, the complex of Julia, Caesar, uh, Julia Felix um, – daughter of spurious which means she potentially doesn't know who her dad is um and it contains it's a leisure complex containing baths and apartments and shops and um a um and yeah and you can come and rent it for five years and choir within basically and all of a sudden archaeologists were able to completely see the whole complex in a different light and realize that it's not a personal space it is a um basically like a, like a kind of leisure complex, like the ones we have now that have like a bowling alley and some restaurants. In it. <laughs> like a, it's like a little strip mall um, that you would go to, but for kind of middle class people um, where they could go to these nice like boutique, bougie little um, baths, which are small and only could fit about kind of eight to 10 people in it. Um, but they've got beautiful little mosaics. And then you can go into this little garden, which has um, fish ponds, and you can walk around, and it's got little bridges that go over the ponds. And then it has a dining room um, where you can go and uh, do reclined dining. So 99% of people in the Roman Empire do not do the kind of dining that you see in films where you're, like, lying on your side and people are feeding you grapes. Like, that is for the the one percenters like the jeff bezos of the roman world can eat like that um and but what apparently you can do and um, what the discovery of julia felix's complex um revealed was that you could buy that for one night and like in the same way that you would go to a really nice restaurant on a special occasion like you know on a round number birthday you go to a mission starred restaurant um people in the in Pompeii could on a fancy occasion go and do reclined dining and could lie down and have a water feature and have enslaved people bring them food instead of sitting up just eating stew from a pot um <laughs> and this idea of like luxury for sale or like temporary luxury is something that no one had ever really thought about before um and the fact that this woman who apparently has no husband she says she doesn't know who like potentially no says she doesn't know who her father is because spurious queen means unknown um um is running this complex by herself she's um and there's evidence you can see in the archaeology that she's had a road moved so that she could expand the gardens um so it was going so well that she expanded um and then she had reached a point around about 79 where she was like ready to move out of the everyday running of this complex and um instead she was going to be like the owner and let somebody else manage it um and it's just such a beautiful insight into her life and then she has a little um like if you go through a passageway and go out at the back then you can see her where she lived and her little office is decorated with paintings of uh, food and money <laughs> oh my gosh she's like <laughs> Well, an entrepreneur. I love it. Um, And she, like, you can see where she's expanded because five years before um, Vesuvius buried the city, there was an earthquake, like a warning sign. And it knocked down um, what used to be, like, the main 
like main streets, like where all of the main restaurants and party places were. And instead, when people were coming out of the theater or out of the arena, they had now had to come down Julia Felix's street. Um, and so she expanded and opened a new shop um, to take advantage of that new foot traffic. Um, and like the archaeologists in Pompeii are amazing at like reconstructing phases of building and they can see like where she has been like oh wow loads of people are walking past here so she pops like a food shop on that road <laughs> goodness yeah she's so cool like uh, that you can just see so much of, of, of a personality that comes out of her <laughs> so one of the things that you said is you kind of got away from academia so that you could write about the blues families of the world in <laughs> yeah to ancient Rome. So when you're writing these books and you know that modern day people that maybe aren't into academia are going to sit down and write them, what do you want them to walk away with? What do you want them to know about ancient Rome? Um, I guess I want people to know that ancient Rome is not as alien and weird and far away as we think it is. Like there is a, when you're writing about ancient history, in particular, there is a real tendency to describe everything in a way that makes them sound like they are completely alien to us, like they where they have no um nothing recognizable about them, but they are not at all like they are humans, they are like us, and two thousand years ago is not that far away um and they are all still people who like fell over a surprising amount and like stubbed their toes and did very deeply strange things like we all did um and so I guess I want to make them more relatable like as a as a culture and I also really um like I suppose my life mission is to try to undermine that idea of ancient Rome as being white men in white togas standing around in white temples being terribly stoic 100% of the time um except when they were being like warriors who with big swords who were brutalizing everybody around them and both those things are good um because they are you know it's a thousand years and that's only if you cut it off with the fall of actual rome if you continue going then you know i've seen people very facetiously make an argument that you can count the roman empires going up to the 1850s which is a fun argument to make <laughs> um if you take but, it up through the byzantines yeah. and the holy roman empire <laughs> exactly um, and then you can basically just keep going until like 1914 if you want to take it through the austro-hungarians right. um, so um but you know it is say a thousand years of just rome um and that time is is thousands millions of people living different types of lives and some of them are weird and some of them are funny and some of them are cruel and some of them are glorious um but all of them are way more interesting than just the battles and senators of that kind of 50 year period that everybody thinks of when they think of rome um and yeah so um i suppose that's my my aim and also from a very general point of view, like I, I want people to enjoy reading about history, mm -hmm. um, because I think that a lot of history books are massive and dense and feel like lectures. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you're both nodding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I struggle to read them, and I am a professional historian, um, and I have always struggled to and. 
I also, you know, I have a job, I come home, 90% of the reading that you do for pleasure is reading that you want to do for pleasure. It's not reading that you want to do because you you feel like you want to punish yourself <laughs> um, and you, you know, you read in the bed or you read on your commute or you read, you know, on the sofa after work, but you, and it, so it needs, I want reading to be a fun thing that people do. And I want people to be reading my books and to want to read about history and to enjoy it and not feel like it's some kind of monstrous chore. Mm. Um, but to be like, Oh my God, history is people and people are fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Now I do this interview could not come have come at a better time. So this week, all over the news, there has been the subject of men thinking about Roman history on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. When you heard this, did you laugh? And did you want to hold up your book and be like, women also think about Roman history? Yeah. And so the, actually, the first time that I heard about this um, was um, when my friend texted me. She sent me a voice note um, and explained it to me. And there was like... I, what does it feel like to be in one of the few straight relationships where you definitely think about the Roman Empire way more than your husband? (laughs) Um, And then I asked my husband, my husband is Irish, um, and said, uh, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And he was like, "Mm, as little as possible. Um, but uh, so yeah so I think it's great um, it's because mostly because I can just be kind of sliding in everywhere being like you should think about the Roman Empire more often but you know what it's because the Roman Empire is cool um, yes. but not in the way you think it is do you right. want to talk <laughs> do you want to hear my horrible stories about like lampreys um or do you want to hear about Julie Felix she's great uh, <laughs> yeah. well it's so funny because when I heard that I was like I think I might be that person in the relationship. Mm, I think about it a lot. I think about the burning of the Library of Alexandria Ah. a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Once a month, I get choked up. I'm like, oh! That's your Roman Empire. Empire. (laughs) Well, we hope that when our listeners go out and buy this book, it'll bump up the numbers for the ladies thinking about the Roman Empire. And uh... (laughs) yeah, and then they can correct their husbands on stuff and that'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So can you tell us and our listeners where people can find you online and your other writing, where they can find your book? Because it released on September 7th, I believe. So it's out there. It is out there. So in the um, everywhere except North America, it is out right now uh, (laughs) as um, under the title of A History of the Roman Empire in 21 Women. And then in the US, it's out on the 7th of November um, as A Rome of One's Own, exact same text, um, but publishers are strange. Um, But that's fine because it means I get two covers, so I can't (laughs) Because Americans are strange. Yes. (laughs) It's really funny because when I put them both up at the same time, everyone I know in America um, on my Instagram came and was like, oh my God, I can't believe the UK gets this really cool cover. And everyone in the UK was like, oh my God, I can't believe America gets this really cool cover. (laughs) So the grass is always greener. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I get two covers, so I'm happy. Uh, but yeah, so you can find both of them, whichever one you want to buy. Um, all the links are on emmasouthern.com. Um, and my Instagram is there and my podcast, which is called History is Sexy, uh, where I answer questions that people don't want to spend a day and a half researching themselves. And, um, yeah, so it's all emmasouthern.com. That's the place to be. Perfect. Perfect. Well, it's been such a treat having you and we've loved talking to you and we can't wait for our listeners to go get your book and drink this great cocktail. I can't wait to drink this great cocktail. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.